say anything. Praying through the Psalms. The title of the series that Pastor PD began last Sunday and we will continue to unfold with you today and over the next six weeks. As a way for you to dive in deeper, we have developed a study guide that can be accessed on our website by selecting Watch and Learn, then Psalms Study Guide. One note, after the study guide was put to bed with all that has gone on the past couple weeks or past couple months, we decided it was more appropriate to start the series with the second message entitled Help from Psalm 6. PD did a masterful job sharing that message last week. Today I'll be sharing the originally first message from Psalm 30. In a couple minutes, a couple of our elders who are currently serving in lay leadership called the session will read today's scripture. Before they do, a few thoughts to give you a bit of context. The late Eugene Peterson once wrote this of the Psalms. What we find in the Psalms is gritty, no-nonsense honesty, which is why the Psalms are not pretty. They're not nice, but they're honest. This is particularly true of Psalm 30, which you'll see. It is categorized by the scholars as a lament psalm, as opposed to the other two major categories, psalms of praise and psalms of thanksgiving. In this psalm, David says anything. That is, he tells it as he sees it, he feels it, and he experiences it. And yet, like many of the other lament psalms, he weaves the themes of praise and thanksgiving through it. You'll see it as we unfold it. Verse 1, verse 4, and verse 11. Look for it. But he doesn't get there without being honest to God as well with what he has experienced and what he is experiencing, for his world had run amok. A very fitting passage of Scripture that we live in as we live in the greater Minneapolis community during this summer of 2020. A time we will not easily forget, nor should we. Let us be attentive to God's Word together. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up, and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Almighty God, thank you for your word. 
it is always available to us here in this country, and it is always applicable to our life, no matter what's going on. Help us to get from it that which you desire for us to take. In Jesus' name, amen. Honest to God prayer. David here and in other lament psalms prays without pretense. His prayer is raw. It's real. He doesn't try to fool God with nice platitudes as if you could fool God anyway. He doesn't try to candy coat anything. He doesn't say what he thinks God wants to hear. I have long come to believe that it is better to be honest to God in prayer and say sorry later. Now, this is not a license to see prayer as walking up to the complaint desk that for some strange reason God sits with a pasted smile on his face waiting to hear us moan and groan. But it is giving permission to be honest with God, for he knows our hearts. And here's the good news. He loves us anyway. And yet what David finds during this honest time with God is this, our hope and confidence in, is in God alone. David begins with giving God praise for his divine rescue that includes running interference with some enemies and healing him from significant illness. Look at verse 1 with me. I will extol you, Lord, for you rescued me. You refused to let my enemies triumph over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you restored my health. You brought me up from the grave, O Lord. You kept me from falling into the pit of death. Now, we can't be sure which enemies David was talking about, for like every leader, he had many. But in this case, because of the connection that seems to be made with this, these particular enemies and David getting deathly sick, there could be something else going on. See, in Old Testament times, sickness and sin were almost always connected. If you were sick, you must have sinned. And if you didn't sin, then it must have been your parents. Somebody's responsible. Now, granted, sometimes we do get sick because of the choices we've made. Like believing it's all about me or it's all up to me that I don't get enough sleep. We know that sometimes there's an obvious connection between getting sick and a choice we make, but sometimes people get sick of no fault of their own. And so, with this misguided attempt that they held in that day, people thought they were therefore going to defend God's righteousness, and they were then seeing that you were sick, they might inquire about your sin to your face, which is a nicer way to say accuse you of sin, or talk bad behind your back, or worse, do both. And it's during those times that your so-called friends could look a lot more like enemies. Talk about kicking somebody when they're down. With friends like that, Job could certainly empathize. Now, granted, this may not be what's going on, but I think it's very plausible. And although we may not have people pointing a finger at us and our sin when we're sick, we do have people, often, even people close to us, family, friends, that hold a strong opinion and bias, not based necessarily on clear understanding of Scripture, but just their bent. And sometimes these people can be quick to discourage you or me when they disagree with our stance on this or on that, or when a decision is made that they wouldn't make. And they can take the wind out of your sails in regard to something God may have put in your heart. 
Well, that's one way to deal with it. Just fluff up your tutu and dance away. But during these moments, we need to know who we are, and more importantly, we need to know whose we are. For our hope and confidence is in God alone, not the naysayer in our world gone amok. Now, that does not mean that we should not listen to godly counsel. Instead, we need to prayerfully discern between the naysaying discourager and the man and woman of God who loves you too much to keep silent. The heading of this psalm indicates that it was sung in the temple as a way of dedication. So in verse 4, David invites everybody to join in. It, it reminds me of those moments when Heather Hood is using her gifted voice to praise our God, and then she turns to us and with a warm smile and with her hands raised invites us to join in. Ah, don't you look forward to that day when we will all once again do so face to face and shoulder to shoulder? I sure do. Verse 4, David says, Sing to the Lord, all you godly ones. Praise his holy name. Worship the one who is truly worthy of your worship. Everybody join in. Y'all sing. All y'all sing. For he is worthy. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. It's unclear what in particular, if anything, David is connecting God's anger to. Is it something David did or didn't do? Or is it something more general connected to the sin of God's people as a whole? We're not told. But what we are told is that God's anger, something to be feared for sure, is nothing compared to his favor. For his favor lasts a lifetime. That is, in an Old Testament understanding, as far as it pertains to one's lifespan, God's favor is upon his people from start to finish. But we live on the other side of the cross. And Jesus overcame both sin and death. And so God's favor for us is not only during our earthly life, but in the forever life to come. The world that has run amok, we live in it, and yes, in the darkness of night, there will be suffering, pain, anguish, and tears. But when the sun rises, shedding the light of God's goodness, joy wins out every time. Old Testament Hebrew scholar Gerald Wilson once wrote, The psalmist's call to praise flows from the awareness that Yahweh's final word is never lament and suffering, but deliverance for his faithful ones. David moves on into verse 6. If God's anger, temporary as it might be, was directed at him, here's probably why. David says, When I was prosperous, I said, Nothing can stop me now. Your favor, O Lord, made me as secure as a mountain. David's problem was that he was over-relying on God's provision and protection. What? <laughs> is that possible? Yeah, I think it is. For that's David's point. When I was prosperous, now we don't know if David's ascribing his prosperity to his own efforts or God's provision or some of both, but he says, when I was prosperous, I was invincible to all, in all that I do. I'm unstoppable. Eugene Peterson's way with words is helpful here. When things were going great, I crowed, I got it made. I'm God's favorite. He made me king of the mountain. Yeah. It reminds me of a song 
We sang way back when I was in high school. I was in the, the swing choir. This song is from a 1966 Broadway play that ended up on the big screen in 1969, starring Shirley MacLaine, titled Sweet Charity. Some of you may remember the song. Others, well, let me fill you in. It kind of goes like this. If they could See me now, that little gang of mine. I'm eating fancy chow and drinking fancy wine. I'd like those stumble bums to see for a fact the kind of top drawer first rate chums I attract. All I can say is, wow, look at where I am. Tonight I landed pow, right in a pot of jam. What a setup, holy cow, they'd never believe it. If my friends could see me, if my. You get the drift. Okay. Once again, I'm going to keep my day job. But from David's perspective, he's got it made. God's favor is on him, and so nothing can get in his way. But then he contrasts that good time feeling with the rest of verse 7, as David says, Then you turned away from me, and I was shattered. Now, That doesn't mean that God actually leaves David as much as it means that David's sense of his presence is missing. For God is omnipresent. That is, he's always there. He's always here. In fact, he's everywhere at the same time. We're told in Deuteronomy 31, your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And Jesus himself in Matthew 28 says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, in reality, most of the time it is us that pull away from him or he clouds his presence from our senses because of sin that we harbor in our hearts, whether it be sin that goes unconfessed or sin of self-reliance, which in itself pushes God aside, which is at the center of David's problem here. And for David, in his great dismay, he is shattered The Hebrew more literally translate this as terrified, out of one's senses. See, when you are walking in a deep, vibrant, ongoing relationship with Jesus, and for whatever reason, his loving, strong, protective, and comforting presence is hidden, it's bad news. Like David, you feel it. You miss him. And because of our faith in Jesus Christ, here's the good news. He is but a prayer away. Sin confessed, sin repented, is sin forgiven. And even if we don't immediately feel his presence, he never really left. Continuing on, David moves into what appears to be bargaining with God. I cried out to you, Lord. I begged the Lord for mercy, saying, What will you gain if I die, if I sink into the grave? Can my dust praise you? Can it tell you of your faithfulness? Hear me, Lord, and have mercy on me. Help me, O Lord. Now, that reasoning might sound a bit ridiculous to us, but it's not uncommon in the Old Testament in that the person is reminding God and himself of God's goodness, of God's covenantal promises, God's grace and mercy. And finally, we find then the net result of God's honest-to-God praying. He concludes his say-anything modus operandi, with all-out joy, praise, and gratitude. Verse 11. You have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. 
You have taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy, that I might sing praises to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give you thanks forever. Peter sends the message is great here. You did it. You changed wild lament into whirling dancing. You ripped off the black mourning band and decked me with wildflowers. I am about to burst with song. I can't keep quiet about you. God, my God, I can't thank you enough. Now, when we're honest to God, sometimes he changes the circumstances and sometimes he does not. But he's always looking to draw us into a place of deeper trust which leads to joy and thanksgiving. See, security is as much an attitude of dependence as it is a circumstance of protection. Trusting in Yahweh and relying on him, come what may, provides security that is ultimately independent of every circumstance. While I was serving as a pastor at First Presbyterian Church in a small town of Walkerton, Indiana, I alternated with other local pastors leading a worship service in the town's nursing home, Miller's Mary Manor. It was their tradition that the residents would pick the hymns that we sing each service. Do you know which song they picked the most? In fact, without fail, someone picked it every time. It was an amazing grace, how great thou art, holy, 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 some of my all-time favorites. It was what at the time was one of my least favorite count your blessings. I think it was actually the same person that picked it every time. She was as sweet as could be and always told me how young I was, but I was in my 30s, so I guess that's quite much younger than I am today. I didn't like the tune, and I thought the chorus left nothing to the imagination. But month after month, we sang it. And as I watched those older saints sing it, particularly the white-haired, blue-eyed woman who picked it with a peace-filled smile on her face and a twinkle in her eye, it grew on me. I won't sing with this one, partly because one solo is enough for one day, and I'm still not all, fond of, all that fond of the tune, but here's, here's how it goes. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your blessings, name them one by one, Count your many blessings. See what God has done. We are to live our lives as if our hope and confidence is in God alone. And when we do, thanksgiving will necessarily come. Or is it that great thanks will help us to realize our hope and confidence is in God alone? Which is it? Which is first? The answer is yes. They both are appropriate. It's like a never-ending circle. One affects the other, that affects the other, and so on and so on. So this week, count your blessings every single morning before your feet hit the floor beside you. Give thanks to God for what he has done, is doing, and will yet do as you brush your teeth. And every time you're faced with a conversation that might be a challenge or a task that normally you would say, I got this, say to God, as more of a reminder to yourself than to him. My hope and confidence is in you and you alone, dear Lord. Let's pray. All the time, every time, every day, 
as believers, our hope and confidence should be in you. And when it is, we have grateful hearts. But in this day, in this time, all the more, our hope and confidence needs to be in you. For you are God. And you are all-powerful. And you can change circumstances and you can choose not to. No matter what, Lord, we put our hope, our confidence in you. And we give you thanks. And we give you praise. Help us, Lord, to be more mindful of your goodness and your grace each and every day. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.